Welcome to the Gasps from a Dying Art Form podcast, where I talk about the history and philosophy of tap dance and things that are tap dance adjacent. If you like the show, please become a supporter on Patreon. Half of all profits go to the Mad Rhythms Tap Academy at the Harold Washington Cultural Center in the historic Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago's South Side. Why don't we start on three? Why do we start on four? I know it's hard to grasp. It's a gas from a dying art form. A gas from a dying art form. Few people like to discuss the history of blackface minstrelsy. Wonder why. Yet what if I told you that it is the greatest cultural paradigm shift in the U.S since slavery was first introduced. Furthermore, what if I told you that the exportation of blackface minstrelsy from the U.S. had an extremely significant role in influencing culture on a global scale, which is still being felt today? What sounds like a conspiracy theory, right? Well, who doesn't love a good one of those? And nowadays, conspiracy theories are like those Those five-count condo swings with a shuffle in the middle. Everybody's got one, and they all stink. People will believe the craziest things. Atlantis, Flat Earth, the new Red Scare, staring at the sun is good for you. You know, stuff like that. But what's funny to me is that they don't seem to acknowledge things that, like, oh, I don't know, are actual real-life conspiracies. Like Like the original Red Scare. When you canceled people by accusing them, true or not, of being a communist, or knowing a communist, or if it sounds like when you sneeze, it's like, communist! Stuff like that. I mean, it happened to Paul Draper. It happened to Dr. Jenny Lagan. Dr. Martin Luther King was called a communist. I mean, it's a real thing that can be proven was a load of BS chorus. Speak to someone who today likes to shout, The commies are coming! The commies are coming! And a lot of them have never even heard of Spartacus, Dalton Trumbo, or the fake Hollywood commie blacklist of the 1940s. And that's kind of crazy. Blackface minstrelsy is considered by many historians to be the United States' first original contribution to the theater and showcasing the U.S.'s first original song and dance styles. That sounds like a big deal, right? Well, it was a very big deal. And minstrel shows, for many, were as unavoidable as, as hearing someone say, Alrighty then, in the 90s. Literally unavoidable. Children in the streets, alrighty then, alrighty then, making their butts talk. Listen, okay, I'm off track. If it was so insanely popular, then why, dear listener, is there a good chance that you don't know very much about it. I mean, I've spoken with uh, not just people in the U.S., but people from England, Switzerland, Australia, Ireland, South Africa, and they know even less about it, which would make sense since since it's this U.S.-American theater format, except that they totally should, too, as I will explain throughout the rest of this program. 
Blackface minstrelsy is an ugly thing to talk about. It literally ruins every serious conversation. For example, apply the history of blackface minstrelsy to modern linguistic analysis uh, via tap dance. The all-tappers-matter side, who don't care for the black art form label for tap dance, saying that it unfairly erases the white practitioners from history and unnecessarily polemicizes tap dance, well, they would have to admit that their historic white practitioners, who are being erased, were calling themselves things like Zip Coon and, and wearing burnt cork face makeup and, and doing parody imitations of black plantations song and dance and imitating black people's mannerisms and speech while making money doing that old Virginia essence in an industry where the people they got their material from were at first not even allowed to participate in, let alone compete or receive any form of compensation for their major contribution. And on the other side, the taprocentrics would have to admit, due to that same lack of competition, unfair as it is, white dancers historically have a statistically larger influence on the evolution of what would become tap dance than we may be comfortable admitting to ourselves, including the fusion of traditional European forms from new immigrants who went into minstrelsy. Like I said, talking about this leaves nobody satisfied. Minstrelsy influenced so many U.S. genres. U.S. clog dance, fiddle playing, banjo playing, and pretty much bluegrass music in general, tap dance, jazz dance, jazz music, American musical theater, stand-up comedy. I could go on. Yet why is this not common knowledge? Now, I know it's ugly, but that's like talking about the European Enlightenment, but skipping the French Revolution just because of the reign of terror. I mean, I know it's super cringy, that reign of terror, but it's still pretty darn important. And we do talk about that and the French Revolution today. So why not this? But what if it goes even deeper than that? What if blackface minstrelsy also influenced many of the European uh, and sometimes Asian and African dance and music forms in their native countries? What if the cultural exchange that everyone is so fond of attributing to New York in the 1830s happened, but on a significantly larger scale throughout the rest of the world and at approximately the same time. What other explanation, besides a deep repressed sense of guilt by the dominant racial class of the last several centuries, could it be than a cabal of wealthy tap-dance Marxists hell-bent on subduing the social consciousness of the masses in order to create a subclass of pliable proletaritaps with which to exploit? To find the answers, we'll take a trip that spans the length of the globe, starting in the United Kingdom, specifically London, England. From an article titled English Ethiopians, British Audiences and Blackface Acts, 1835-1865, author J.S. Bratton writes that the minstrel show was enjoyed by people in every social strata in England as early as the third decade of the 19th century. The people going to see minstrel shows in London, uh, starting around 1835, ranged from the upper and middle classes, who enjoyed large Europeanized minstrel performances, while lower class audiences 
often got the music hall or like the tavern version. One explanation for the popularity of minstrel shows in England is due to the general interest the Brits had regarding what black Americans were actually like. With many British residents only learning about enslaved uh, U.S. black people through written description. Another explanation is that British audiences viewed blackface characters as symbolizing things like rebelliousness, machismo, and a primal energy that was inherent in everyone in the working class. And I guess, you know, that they, they took to that a little bit. As in the U.S., a white or black person in England could get in serious trouble for openly criticizing a powerful elite. But on stage while in blackface, well, that's not me. That's the characters saying that. Bratton claims that the British wanted the authentic black people experience, but were not quite sure what authentic was. Reviews of an 1849 tour of the traveling minstrel company, the Ethiopian Serenaders, were labeled as mere black caricatures and were criticized for it, while actual black performers like Master Juba and Ira Aldridge were applauded. According to Bratton, the minstrel song and dance, like the clog dance of Northern England or the Scottish pipe tune, was understood to be a specialized branch of the business most authentically performed by appropriate natives. However, famous blackface performer Thomas Dartmouth Rice, better known as Jim Crow, who was also known to do a version of pre-tap dance, arrived in England in 1836 and was very popular. In Robert Toll's Blacking Up, the minstrel show in 19th century America, Toll writes that Rice's dancing was the first of many Afro-American dances to become a worldwide success. With Bratton adding that there were many imitators of Rice that spread throughout the British theater scene. In a 1985 article titled The Internationalization of American Popular Culture in the 19th Century, The Case of the Minstrel Show, author Richard Waterhouse writes that a significant number of American minstrel performers, black and white, decided to remain and form English-based troops. The Moore and Burgess Christie's Minstrels Minstrel Show ran at the St. James Theatre in London from 1859 to 1904. That's over 40 years. And the Mohawk minstrels were at the Agricultural Hall in Islington from 1873 to 1900. That's a 27-year run. Holy cow. Queen Victoria had minstrel shows performed at historic Arundel Castle twice. When not performing, these minstrel performers padded their pockets in the same way that performance artists do now. They taught their craft, so these white and black minstrel performers were not just performing, but teaching black American vernacular dance in England for over half a century before George M. Cohen's Yankee Doodle Boy made it to a London stage, and even longer before Ruby Keeler's bombastic opening to Lloyd Bacon's 42nd Street wowed audiences on silver screens at downtown picture palaces. Regarding the influence of American minstrel troops in England, Waterhouse writes, While it is consequently also likely that there was less Negro content in English than American minstrelsy, the fact remains that many of the same songs, dances, and sketches 
were performed and told on both sides of the Atlantic. Waterhouse continues, That this was the case is hardly surprising, considering the numbers of American minstrels who performed in England, thus ensuring that the English repertoire was constantly reinforced with the latest American creations. But did the minstrel caricatures influence British people's opinion of black people, particularly black Americans? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Of course it did. And what they did with that influence is literally one of the worst things I've ever heard in my life. Perhaps worse than than what you're imagining, but I'm not going to talk about that now. We'll get to that in a little bit. But now, let's take the P&O ferry from Liverpool across the Irish Sea to Ireland, which in the early 19th century was riding the wave of the Irish anti-slavery movement. Which is odd that no Irish abolitionists raised much of a stink when the minstrel show came to Dublin. With that city alone hosting 15 blackface minstrel performing companies before the beginning of the American Civil War. Thomas Dartmouth Rice, that delineator to beat all delineators, enjoyed great success in Ireland, and there are reports that the street urchins shout sang the lyrics to Jump Jim Crow while running down the streets. In 1844, the Yankee minstrels appeared at the Theatre Royale, and it was said by the Freeman's Journal that their variety of new N-word songs and dancing had been really something. And in October of 1846, the Ethiopian Serenaders opened at the Music Hall and was attended by Irish nobility like the Lord and Lady Ponsonsby, and was again mentioned in the Freeman's Journal, which said that their songs are peculiar in melody, and whilst abounding in humorous portraiture of the Negro character, are yet free from the coarseness and vulgarity which has banished N-word dancing and singing from the stage to the taverns and singing houses. And there's more. Pell's Opera Troupe in 1858, uh, Christie's Minstrels in 1859, the original Campbell's Minstrels in 1860, and so many more. This all comes from an article titled Blacks and Blackface on the Irish Stage, 1830-1860, where author... Douglas C. Ryack digs in deep into three decades of American blackface minstrelsy in Ireland. The popular Irish image of the Negro must have been in part determined by such performances, writes Ryack, saying that the image of the Negro in these minstrel shows was one that was often not in the least hostile to his enslaved condition. Ryack also claims that the stories of black American hardship pulls on the heartstrings of Irish abolitionists who empathized with the pathetic black caricatures. But that didn't stop these minstrel shows from selling gangbusters at the box office, drawing drawing large crowds, including various gentry of the day. But that's not to say there wasn't any actual entertainment performed by black American performers in Ireland, and in January of 1852, the Southern Troop of Stable Harmonists, an all-black troop, appeared at the music hall. The Freeman's Journal rallied audiences to go see the show, saying that it was incredible that a practical company of real N-words with genuine woolly heads and skins of sable that could not be washed white could be imported from the rice and cotton fields of America to exemplify not what the bondaged darkies were like, but what they really were. 
This is coming from the Free Man's Journal. Well, there were other black performing troops as well, like the original band of Negro Melodists, who performed at the Royal Portobello Gardens in August of 1853. So it wasn't all fake black people all the time in Dublin. And same as in London, the superior quality of the all-black troops is evident in the press. But like any pop culture phenomenon, minstrelsy left its mark in Ireland, with Riot concluding his essay by saying, it is probable that the cause of the Negro in America suffered from the failure of the abolitionists in Ireland to condemn as wholly inaccurate the image of the Negro most often presented on the Irish stage and carried to America in the minds of countless Irish emigrants. So that means some of those Irish dancers in the Five Points area may have been exposed to minstrelsy, i.e. black American song and dance by white and black practitioners, even before coming to the United States. I'll close this part with a quote from the Freeman's Journal where it's... Well, hold on, I'm going to scan this one. No, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to read it. I'm not going to read that word no more. Sorry. Freeman's Journal, you canceled. Now, if you'll continue to follow me on this trail of cringe, we'll board a Lufthansa United plane and head due south for about uh, 16,428 kilometers. And about 40 hours later, we'll arrive in Sydney, Australia, where, let me tell you, the Australians took the minstrelsy uh, like, um, like nightmare bug creatures take to Australia. Waterhouse again writes that minstrel troops did not really start in Australia until 1850, with the continent becoming part of the regular international minstrel circuit in 1870 receiving original touring minstrel troops from the U.S. and England. In the late 19th century, Australia saw a massive population growth in urban centers due to European colonial expansion, and Australia gained a new people-dense economy that was absolutely booming. Just like in London and Dublin, and uh, in growing urban centers across the United States of America, it's the entertainment-hungry masses in large cities like Sydney, where the minstrel show takes hold. As in elsewhere, Australia's blackface minstrel character, which was still mainly based on black enslaved Americans, also grew to represent a variety of cultural and ethnic groups. People on the fringe, and like fast food chains, tended to alter their secret recipe as they go from town to town, or in the minstrel show's case, country to country, or even continent to continent. In Australia, one such group was the Larrikins, a rebellious, troublemaking, lower-class subgroup of young men and women who identify with the Irish rabble-rouser persona popular in Anglo-Celtic history, song, and story. One of their favorite pastimes, when not making fun of the fops, was blackface theater. In an article titled Larrikin, Australian Larry Kins and the Blackface Minstrel Dandy. Author Melissa Belanta explains how the Larry Kins identified with the standard minstrel characters, like the brutish Sambo-type character, and tried to emulate their primal masculinity and defiance of authority. The Larry Kins also did their own version of blackface theater, <laughs> some of it in proper playhouses and music halls, but also 
on the street corners as blackface showman panhandlers who one Melbourne shopkeeper described as young blackguards who arranged themselves in rings on the footpath, in the midst of which they would practice the breakdowns, the quick steps, and the double shuffle, which appear to be the highest of their achievements. So that was like a gang of blackface tap dancers roaming around the streets and hassling people for money and jamming in the streets. I, I wish you could say you made this type of stuff up, but it, it's it's impossible. Anyways, so so that's as far south as we can get, right? Australia? Wrong! Let's hop a Qatar brand aeroplane to Cape Town, South Africa. Or I guess we go to Johannesburg. Or actually, you know what? Let's go to Durban. Uh, here it's called the Curry Capital of the, of the South Africa. Anyways... It's in South Africa where things get really ugly. American and British minstrel troops enjoyed great success with the white English audiences in South Africa as early as the 1870s, with long-running sold-out tours in places like Durban to the south and Cape Town to the west. In the article titled, The Young Men Must Blacken Their Faces, the Blackface Minstrel Show in Pre-Industrial South Africa, author Chinua Thelwell writes about how blackface minstrelsy, like that of Jim Crow, was a major contributor to the race discourse against black South Africans in the 19th century. Ironically, much in the same way that South American apartheid, in part based on U.S. segregation laws or Jim Crow laws, attempted to do the same thing a century later. So that's a hundred-year bookends of, 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 of Jim Crow messing with the local indigenous South Africans. While most scholars focus on a materialist view of uh, the English influence on South African racial hierarchies, like influences of laws and economic practices, there is a post-colonial and post-structuralist argument that power relations involve more than just materialist stuff, but they involve uh, systems of race, class, gender, ethnicity, religion, and culture, with performance culture being a significant sphere of influence. As in the U.S., British colonists in South Africa needed a subjugated, unskilled, free, or lowly paid proletariat class in order to accrue disproportionate uh, wealth amongst themselves. And also, as in the U.S., the minstrel show was used as a tool toward this end. However, there is a distinct difference in how this tool operated differently in South Africa. In the U.S., blackface stereotypes were used to maintain images of jolly subservience from black people. But in South Africa, there it was essentially installing new stereotypes on the local black population. White elites in South Africa would see these minstrel shows that depicted happy and carefree and generally subservient black characters and, with, with no or very little frame of reference, thought to themselves, huh, maybe, maybe that's really how civilized black people naturally act. And not considering the local population civilized, whatever that means, uh, they would go to them and be like, hey, hey, th this is how you're supposed to act. 
Why aren't you acting like them, you, you dumbos? Thelwell quotes a passage from historian Clifton C. Craze and writes, These images provided English settlers with a romanticized image of blackness, an image of black labor that settlers desperately wanted to turn into reality. It also influenced the identity of the British colonists, who idealized the imperial status of the minstrel show's white characters. Ironically enough, the minstrel show model that originated in the United States served as a cultural lifeline for English South Africans. Living so far from their metropole made some of them feel isolated from their origins and somehow less English. I mean, what could it be living in this southernmost part of Africa could make you feel less English? I don't know. But through the familiar pastiche of the Britishized, London-imported, London-made minstrel show, the white residents were reminded of who they were. And through the comically grotesque portrayal of Southern American black people, they were reminded of who they were not. And that's not all. There was blackface minstrelsy in Germany around the same time as Ireland and England, and a recent German blackface production in 2012 caused public protest. There was blackface minstrelsy in Cuba. Some even blame blackface mannerisms as an influence on modern Cuban spirit possession. Though I haven't had the courage to do more and skim through that one, as I can't go into too much detail. In France, it is believed that Claude Debussy, in book one of his Piano Preludes, composed number 12, titled Minstrels, after seeing minstrel dancers perform, possibly in a bar in Paris. In Israel, there was a long history of blackface performance. The final show to use it uh, being performed as late as 1994. And besides use, uh, being used for caricatures of Southern black Americans and black South Africans, the Ashkenazi actors even invented their own brand of blackface caricature for the dark-skinned Jews who arrived from Northern Africa and Western Asia. Uh, let's call it um, Mizrahi face. Uh, actually, that's a terrible idea. Don't anybody call it that. And there were minstrel shows in, in India with popular minstrel performer Dave Carson adding Indian face to his already formidable racist repertoire with his character, the Bengali Baboo. Now, after all that, I ask you again, why don't most people know about any of this stuff? It seems to me that a globe-spanning, culture-bringing, blackface-wearing song-and-dance show that ran in some capacity or other for over a hundred years would be a topic of interest to many people. When people complain about uh, losing Aunt Jemima, why are they not just told all of this? All around the world, there was a successful industry that operated on creating false stereotypes of black people, using those stereotypes to sway the public to believe and adopt racist policy, and as a means to maintain a pro-slavery mindset in the people that they're stereotyping. And doing this in places as far away from each other as far away can possibly be on the planet Earth. Now I ask you again, what, what is the explanation? I mean, is it a deep-seated societal guilt or is it a global cabal? I don't know. Uh, but this brings me to my final point on this subject. 
What does this history of international minstrelsy do to the appropriation, excuse me, appropriation by proximity theory of culture? The popular history of tap dance is that black and Irish and English dancers gradually mixed and assimilated their styles over time simply because they were forced to live in the same areas and uh, by reason of proximity spontaneously created tap dance. But the building blocks of tap were already introduced to the popular cultures of, say, the Irish and English at least a decade before Charles Dickens made his 1941 trip to the Five Points District in New York City where his gaze fell upon the man uh, later to be known as Boz's Juba. Were Europeans somehow immune from absorbing dance and music styles when they were at the same time attending these shows en masse, uh, while taking lessons in them and, 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 and while doing them professionally themselves and while exporting their own brand of them around the world? That sounds pretty proximal to me. If we're going to play by the rule of cultural appreciation and appropriation by proximity, the idea that cultural exchange happens when one group is exposed long enough to another well, then I think that if you're going to ask the question, what did black American dancers get from the Europeans? Well, it's only fair to ask, uh, also, what did black American dancers recognize in the Europeans as coming from themselves? But that's just a gasp from a dying art form. Thank you very much for listening. Please find us on Facebook. Uh, look up Gas for a Dying Art Form on Patreon. Uh, but first, uh, or but last, really, it's time for our Tap Dance Podcast Roundup, where I'm firmly stuck in the past. These creators are actually moving forward through time and documenting tap dance as it is today. Very valuable. On episode number 76 of the Tap Love Tour podcast, the Tap Dance Podfather does it again by doing a program that mentions the topic of this program, the one I just got done telling you about, uh, but way before I did it. Host Travis Knights begins by talking about international minstrelsy at the beginning of the episode, and then pretty much does the the, the Gasps uh, first episode, okay? uh, but better in an interview with venerable tap dance historian and stage manager extraordinaire, Hank Smith. The worst part is, Spotify shows that I listened to the episode before, so was I subconsciously influenced by the Tap Love Tour, and, and should it get some credit? Yes, yes, I think so, and this is it. Credit, credit, credit. Join the Tap Love Tour Patreon, visit the website, uh, they're all over social media, and wherever you get your podcasts. After listening to episode number 42 of the Lost in the Shuffle podcast with host Hilary Marie, an incredible thing happened. I now actually want to teach a beginner tap class. Incredible. If this episode had existed 18 years ago, it would have saved me a lot of grief. And it's so obvious now. I mean, the secret to teaching effective beginner tap classes is in the episode. So join the ITAP online community for lessons and advice and find the podcast wherever podcasts are sold. Well, they're not really sold, they're free. 
Well, they're not really free. You have to pay. Everything's terrible. On episode number 25 of Have Tap Shoes Will Travel, host Rick Oslin interviews Tap Dogs alumni Anthony Lacascio and Sesame Street Live alumni Stacy Lacascio, and they talk about Lacascio's annual summer tour. Uh, they talk about Rick and Anthony's love-hate relationship with dance competitions, and you can learn the origin of the name of uh, the Lacascio's Tap Life Dance Company, the origin of which featuring Earl Barrett of Mad Rhythms. Also, just come to hear Anthony Anthony Lacascio speak. It's like someone took... It's such like a good, grainy New York accent. It's like someone took an 80-year-old Italian New York cab driver, dipped them in butter, and then put them through a wood chopper, and then scattered their mole- molecules so that they form little little wave patterns, and then they, they slip-slide down your ear holes, and just... What a voice. I love it. On episode 11 of the Real Talk Tap Talks, host Nico Rubio interviews a real OG, Reggio the Hoofer McLaughlin, a Chicago staple and a legend in his own right. In the interview, McLaughlin recounts his first introduction to tap dance at a local Stony Island Park District, uh, talks about his mentee-mentor-caregiver relationship with Ernest Brownie Brown of the team Cook and Brown, uh, they talk about the decline of tap dance in theater, uh, the origins of the famed chair dance, and so much more. It's like two hours and 50 minutes, so... But it's all good. It's all good. Like, once you start, you don't put it down, so make sure you're not busy. It's a good dose of history for all you tap nerds out there. Check it out. And that's all. Join our Patreon. Join our Facebook group. This is Tristan Bruins signing off for Gasps from a Dying Art Form. Were they black? Then start in the Caribbean. Do we trust the European? Can't you see? Oh, is history is killing me. Why don't we start on three? Why do we start on four? I know it's hard to grasp. It's a gas from a dying art form. A gas from a dying art form. All right, here's the bonus. This is what we talk about after everybody leaves, you know, like uh, like when you, you the song will keep going on an album and you'd be like, oh, oh there's going to be some weird, stupid thing at the end. Well, this is that weird, stupid thing. Anyways, seriously, Tap Love Tour is like, like the Simpsons of Tap Dance podcast now. I feel like every time I think of something to write about, Spotify sends me an alert saying, Tap Love did it already. I mean, technically... Tap Love and Gasps are practically the same podcast. I mean, really, well, except for the amount of time we've been on and the, the discrepancy in the number of episodes we have. Um, the fact that Knights gets amazing guests that bring up a wider range of topics and, um, and he doesn't sound like he's uh, sometimes talking with a, a mouthful of marbles. But, but other than those things, near identical. You know, after learning all of this international minstrelsy stuff, I mean, it kind of blows my mind for people to say that tap is owed to Irish step dance or English clog just because they look similar. And by that metric, well, you can only judge dancing that existed uh, after video recording was made possible. Uh, You know, and maybe, uh, well, that was like tentatively at the end of the 19th century, more so in the 20th century, with the first home video recorder 
not being invented until the 1950s. So when they say uh, that they look similar, what are they actually talking about? The English, the English and Irish dancing that had a hundred years of, of black American dance influence from black and white Americans, lots of whom just stayed over there? Is that what they're talking about? Look similar to that? What if we went the other direction and started telling Irish and English people that their dancing must be rooted in tap dance, like black American tap dance, because they look so similar? People would lose their, their gosh damn minds, except that there's plenty of evidence to suggest it. You know, I know a lot of people are talking about uh, the reinvigoration of the teaching of critical race theory. Or maybe it's not a reinvigoration. Maybe there's 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 not as many things to talk about. Um, but anyways, they're teaching critical race theory in the schools. And, uh, you know, I, I agree with most of it. One thing that's cool about it that, that no one ever mentions, which is really stupid they don't mention it, is that there's many different streams of critical race theory, you know? So I don't agree with everything in one group, but then there's like another group, and you can kind of pick and choose from the different, you know, like groups. Is it structuralist thing? Is it post-structuralist? Is it anti-structuralist? Anyways, my hope for this critical race theory teaching is that uh, maybe these minstrel histories will get some attention because they explain a lot about what's going on uh, in modern times. CRT is pro-storytelling and narratives to get information across. So what's better than some of these, these old movies? like the Southern apologist Shirley Temple movies, or the jazz singer, or Casablanca, or even parts of Stormy Weather. I mean, use these uh, stories, you know, to show how things were really messed up back then, and uh, as a way to make the direction we should be heading a clear one. I mean, why not just show some people the cringe and let them come to their own conclusions? Again, every time someone laments Aunt Jemima, it's like, dude, Watch The Jazz Singer or Bamboozled or something. Watch any of these movies, right? Get a clue, at least. And then come back and be like, oh, yeah, that was super offensive. I don't want to look at that no more. Ah, it's on my syrup. Ah, it's on my rice. Ah, it's, it's everywhere. Ah, what's happening? The red pill, red pill. Or blue pill. I don't know. I forget which pill is the good pill. Um, well, regarding blackface in general, here's an interesting idea. Right? By putting on blackface makeup, you are essentially making yourself racially white. I know it seems like it'd be the opposite, but the majority of audiences, you know, after a while, they knew that performers in blackface were actually white guys. And that's why black performers would black up when the minstrel scene became integrated after the Civil War. So that they could maybe pass for white while wearing blackface. In blackface, white men could be even uh, more themselves since it was acceptable for the character to be outrageous and you know, really speak what's on their mind. The use of blackface, while serving as a tool of oppression for black people, may have served the dual role as being a release valve for, for white performers, a reaction to strict political and religious repression, right? Protestant repression, historically. By being black... These white dudes could be more of their white selves, free from embarrassment and ridicule. Uh, does this explain the deep, ingrained, psychological scarring in a lot of European Americans today that may be causing them 
subconsciously or not, to commit racial microaggressions, adopt a colorblind attitude, and turn a blind eye to a system of obvious racial hierarchies? I'm not saying it's an excuse, but the idea of white people turning black to turn more white is just so messed up. How could that not have some kind of long-lasting effect on uh, the individuals living in a society over time? Anyways, okay, that's enough. That's it. Thanks for listening. Uh, I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.